Welcome to episode 108 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. This episode, we hung out, spent time with, chatted with the designer previously known as Brad Simpson. He currently works at Medium. Before that, he was at IDEO doing some crazy technical shit before that with hydrodynamics and mechanical we'll engineering. Let him explain it better. Yeah, stuff that Bryn and I know nothing about. Super fun conversation. Then towards the end, we dig into some of the stuff he's doing at Medium. Uh, before we get into... Spoiler alert. God damn it. You just explained the whole episode. Ah, uh, just Ryan, keep... do you have to say everything? Sorry. It is very fun. So enjoy. But before we get into it, uh, we do want to thank our sponsor for making this episode possible. Oh, shit. They're back. Dropbox. Yay. Dropbox is back. Dropbox is the simplest way to work the way you want. Uh, whether you're sketching, coding, prototyping, Dropbox is with you throughout the design process. The whole thing. Brian, what's your design process like? Uh, so actually, it came up on Twitter the other day. Someone was listening to old episodes where I used to use the Dropbox web interface exclusively. Bin Chen. Uh, I have since... Previous guest, Bin Chen, gave you shit on the internet for using the Dropbox web interface. And I have since changed my ways. Uh, I use exclusively the native file syncing in Finder, whatever you call that. Uh, and it is glorious and marvelous and magical uh, sharing files across my entire team, uh, across all my computers, my phone, everything, sharing links to other designers within Facebook. It is Does it work magical. without any kind of file you want? Any kind of file. So right now I mostly use it for Sketch, which is rad, but it also works with Photoshop files. Uh, Affinity Designer? Yeah. Uh, I use it for all my files. It actually stores like Pixate files and all these like crazy things, Flow, all the prototyping apps and everything. It's crazy. Some of the best things, you can share massive files instantly, just grab a link and send it to the person and then you don't have to upload all that crap and send it and it just does it. We actually uh, hired a previous guest, Didi Medina, to do photos for Sidewire and our whole process for approvals was Dropbox comments. Ah, Dropbox comments, you can comment inline on con uh, on the work that you're doing. So an entire conversation can be had on the file itself by non-designers who maybe can't open a sketch file. It's awesome, we love it. And we're so glad to have Dropbox back sponsoring the episode. Thank you once again to Dropbox for sponsoring the show. Go check it out and get started at dropbox.com. One more quick thing before we get started is the network is growing. Spec now has six shows. We've got more in the works. We're looking for sponsors to help support those shows and get your product or company or hiring page or whatever it is that you need to get out there in front of our network of designers and developers. So there's six shows, more coming soon. If you're interested in sponsoring one podcast or the entire network, you can hit us up, sponsors at spec.fm is our email, or just DM Bryn or myself, and we'll be happy to get you going. And with that, let's get to episode 108 with Brad Simpson. Hi, I'm Brad Simpson. But now, my name is Brad Artsiniega. What? Yeah. Why? True story. Um, well, I got married, and uh, my wife and I, neither of us liked our last names. So you made one up or what? <laughs> no, we didn't make one up. What? Um, yeah, so my uh, grandparents, when they came over, they're Basque, and when they came over, they changed their last name to Simpson. And uh, so I was born Brad Simpson, and then... Um, we got married we were like we can we can totally reinvent ourselves right now and change our last name to anything that we want and um 
we were like we're basque nationalist separatists let's uh take the take the traditional last name so we took my grandparents last name artsiniega so i actually just got this driver's license last week and i haven't quite figured out how i'm gonna um like i have this you have like an identity online that then you need to update um, oh god well, you started here so that's a good start good. <laughs> so this good is my this point. is how i'm coming out to the world jeez wow launching launching yeah that must right be now. a fucking logistical nightmare it's pretty terrible it's, it's it was terrible when sarah changed her last name to jackson even like one person's bad two people has to be rough i mean two people i don't know if it's i think it's more well one person when they change their last name they can do it when they get married um but we actually tried we actually tried to maneuver where apparently when you get married you can make your last name any combination of the letters that your two names last names have right <laughs> so we tried to like pull a fast one and say that we had the letter z in our last names which we definitely didn't simpson 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 and uh she wasn't having it so um we had to go through like court orders and everything but you can add hyphens yeah but that doesn't really solve the problem man what about like M dashes and N dashes? Mm. <laughs> Asking the tough questions. No, that doesn't work either. Minuses? Um, so, holy shit. Okay, so who was once known as Brad Simpson is now Brad Artsenyega. Yeah. Which is slightly harder pr- to pronounce. It's harder to pronounce. But it sounds pretty cool. It's a great name. Uh, it, you have to spell that for the rest of your life. And Simpson is like... <laughs> Simpson's so easy. Chill. Yeah, everyone knows that. It's weird when people ask me if it's Jackson with O-N as if there's like an I-N or E-N. They probably mean J-A-X-S-O-N or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not dude, the O-N. They, like, say, they ask about the O-N. This, it's the they C-K-S. The O-N. <laughs> this is going to oh. change your life forever. Like imagine... I know. Networking... As you, because I know that that's, that's one of your like pastimes. my top priority. Do they know there's a Z in your Twitter handle? Could you work from that? Oh wow, no, they back, don't. That's not on the application anymore. Why not? What year is it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyways, uh, <clears throat> Brad Artsenyega. Yeah, so that's. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Artsenyega. Yeah, A R T Z I N I E G A. Have you already changed your Facebook? No, I haven't changed anything because standard. I was going to write a medium post about, oh, why, about why we decided to do it and the process that is having someone recognize your name. When is that post going to be published? Uh, unspecified. All right. Uh, Brad. Yes. Brad A. I like that. Brad A. Uh, what do you do? Brad A. What are you working on? Um, it sounds like an R&B singer. It's like Kid A. Brad A. Brad A. Oh, like Radiohead? Yeah. Ooh, Brad A. That's nice. It's like Shot A. <laughs> Shot A is pretty good. Dude, two birds. You got a real last name, now you got a rap name. Yeah, Brad A. I don't know. It's not, it's not landing. Okay. What do you do? What are you working on? Um, I am a product designer at Medium. So I work on Medium all day long. Like every the day. product? The product. Um, yes, the product. You don't write blog posts all day long. (laughs) You wish. No, yeah, no, I do not do, um, brand. I do not do content. Instead, I do product design. How many designers are there there? There are six designers, including a user researcher. Let's come back to medium because I got lots of questions. Yes. I want to first start before in the before times. 
How did you get in design? Um, probably started with art camp. I went to art camp a bunch, and at the same time, I went to pro. Now is art art short for arts and yoga camp? Uh, no, but it's like a training ground for arts and yoga camp. Mm-hmm. Um, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Yes. Um, I went to art camp. And my parents, my actually just my mom was insightful enough to realize that um, I like computers a lot. And so she actually sent me to a programming camp. How old are you? Uh, I was in sixth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. I bet no fifth grade or sixth graders liked computers at that time. No, no one did. You're pretty uh, unique that way? It was pretty, yeah, it was like a, I was like a unique star. Wait, that's pretty crazy. So you went to programming camp, that would have been what, early 90s? I only know because I just saw your birthday on your... Driver's license. Yeah, let me think. Aww. When's your How birthday? How old are you in sixth grade? Almost, almost happy birthday. Twelve. Buddy. I was twelve. What? I was no, I was mid nineties. You're like eleven. I don't know. Mid nineties. Mid nineties. Um, I was living in Georgia. Uh, Is that where you're from? No, I was born in San Diego. He's a Basque separatist. Did you not hear that? Yeah, I'm Basque. So you're born in San Diego. <laughs> I was born in San Diego and then moved to Georgia, but I'm Basque. Basque country. <laughs> but I'm Basque, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Nice, dude. Um, yeah. Uh, so I went to programming camp mid-90s, like when Hackers came out, I'm pretty sure. Actually, yes. I don't know when that movie came out. but yeah. dude, Hackers was great. Probably around I that time. I love that movie. It was it's super some terrible. but Amazing man. attire in it that someday I hope to replicate. And names, Zero Cool and was it Acid Burn? Wow, this really influenced your life, <laughs> huh? Bryn. No one else remember those names except you. Bryn watches that movie a lot, uh, frequently. Do you? Yeah, no, I haven't seen it since it came out. Maybe probably. no, I I think the last time I watched it, I was probably in like seventh or eighth grade. It's a pretty big movie. I skipped class in high school. No, I don't know. No, middle school to go see The Matrix. Speaking of impactful movies in your life, um, yeah, that was the first I, R-rated movie I ever saw. Cliffhanger was mine. All right, all right, Sylvester Stallone. That's right. You're good at naming actors in movies. Yes. <laughs> it's a very rare skill. <laughs> Few can replicate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I went to programming camp. That's crazy. So what was that like getting that sort of influence when you were so young? That's pretty, that's early. It was early, yeah. You haven't figured out what you like yet, but no. you're programming. Y- yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think uh, I enjoyed math a lot. Um, I had a really cool third grade math teacher who gave me this book of word problems and he knew I would like it. Uh, are this only number problems? It's math. (laughs) (laughs) This is is amazing. It's like a free comedy set, but like the local bar where they're like (laughs) walk-ons. Dude, sick burn. All right. Medium. Calm down. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. I learned, well, a big, uh, a big, super important milestone in my life was when I got the most improved programmer award for that summer. Seriously? Seriously. What'd that change? Nothing. Uh, it probably didn't change <laughs> anything in the end. But I actually um, got a full ride scholarship from that. <laughs> so programming camp. I went to programming camp um, at a young age. I was an influential uh, young sponge at that time. Um, I loved true basic it was just an amazingly well-constructed language um and then uh, i learned pascal all these like weird um bogus language like i mean not bogus but they're used for like 
whatever numerical pretty OG numerical programming. Yeah, it's like I don't I don't know what you're gonna do with that. Make a database. I don't even know. I don't know what you do with Pascal. <laughs> I don't even know you do make it. Can't even see it. <laughs> it's just Stupid. numbers. There's no actually in True Basic that summer I made Snake, which was really cool. That was like the last part of this. It was actually just a week. Um, the camp was a week. So what happened next? What happened after that? Um. Well, then I went to um. I got into well, I got into physics and engineering, and then in uh. Yeah, it's a super random path. I got into mechanical engineering, which is what I did in college. And um, I got I kept programming, did a lot of like uh, embedded hardware kind of like programming. So actual... Uh, it's like firmware. Yeah, like robotics. Damn. Um, and then uh, I got into fluid dynamics because I, was, I went to school in San Diego so that I could surf um, and do engineering. And so I started shaping surfboards. And I got really into how uh, hydrodynamics of surfboards works. Like there's all these crazy crackpot uh, surfers who uh, t- talk like fluid dynamics theory about how it works, which is totally bogus. And so um, I got into that and that I ended up going to MIT for fluid dynamics to properly kind of try to understand uh, hydrodynamics. And then, uh, yeah, so I went there to uh, actually study how fish... Uh, swim and then my research was based on understanding what was the goal of learning how fish swim i'm sorry (laughs) the goal was to to understand unsteady flows okay in water so this was like totally motivated by the idea of making the perfect surfboard at one point i was like no one understands how surfboards work uh because you know you put it in a in a body of water and you run water past it um but that's like the idealized environment. So normally the waves moving upwards at an angle and you're pumping the board. And so it's just an unsteady flow. Like the, the flow parameter is changing at all times. So when people talk about like this fin has the least drag, it's ridiculous because it's not actually- It's relative. Yeah, yeah. It's not actually measured in the context that it's used. Um, so I wanted to study uh, fluid- um, fluid structure interaction, which is how fluids interact with structures. <laughs> That's <laughs> the name. Aptly <laughs> titled, like, holy shit, couldn't have picked Didn't a better fuck name. fuck around there. Yeah, like. Physicists don't a, fuck around. A plus in naming. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I was looking at that and I was actually working on, there's this crazy study with these fish, these uh, salmon, and um, they eat all this food before they swim upstream to spawn. And uh, the energy content of that food isn't enough to help them get to where they end up, right? And they're swimming upstream. So they're like making energy somewhere along the way. They don't eat food along the way. So there was this question of like, what are the mechanics in which this fish is magically generating energy when swimming against a current? Did you find the answer? Yeah. Turbines. Um, No. But you're onto something. Um, (laughs) The no, the answer is that they're basically uh, their their muscular structures set up uh, a lot of ways in like a tuned rubber band. So they um, there's all these rocks and sticks in a stream, and when the water goes past them, they form these eddies, and the fish actually passively synchronize to the eddies and sort of match the frequency at which they're shedding, and then their fins they're sort of this like tuned rubber band, and they're sort of moving 
like undulating and they move in such a way that they actually generate thrust upstream passively. So the study ended in like taking a dead fish, putting it in a tank of water, running water past it, past an idealized rock and the and the dead fish actually swims upstream, which is kind of like the proof that they're just muscular, like their structure is tuned to that. So, Or that it's a zombie salmon. Yeah, or there's life after death. <laughs> what are you guys doing at one, one of two, take your pick. Uh, we went with that they're tuned structurally. The and flopping so, dead. Yeah. So, and then taking that and applying that to wind turbine blades. Um, so there's turbines and they actively- They, they can swim upstream. They can't. Problem solved. Well- you want them to, mm-hmm. but they have all this expensive hardware on them that measures the flow as it approaches the blades and the blades have to actively pitch and they've got these expensive motors that make the blades so they're always operating at maximum efficiency. But if you could, if you could efficiency, make- Efficiency, no, now yeah, I get it. Efficiency. But if you could make the blades like the fish's body so you don't need all the hardware, if it can passively tune itself to maximum efficiency, passively it's t- great. Tuna itself? Wow. Tuna, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to <clears throat> bust that bubble, buddy. Sorry to bust that underwater bubble. Um, so This is insane. Anyways, I did that. And uh, while I was there, I ended up hanging out at Media Lab more than I hung out in my lab. Um, what drew you there? Uh, it was just, uh, I mean, it's like, a, like, you know those bug zappers? They're like, <laughs> they just attract the right species. It's kind of like that. Um so people that like kind of the blend of uh, art and science or whatever naturally end up there, it seems like. So I started hanging out there, working with a bunch of smart people who know more about uh, like interaction design and like more generally like graphical programming. I think like there's a lot of crazy physical interaction design that goes on there and like new novel interfaces and ways of interacting with physical digital products. And so uh, I worked on some like activist technologies there with a cool group this group that used to be run by this guy chris chicksent mihai his dad mihai chicksent mihai wrote the book flow do you know that book no no oh man is it about salmon no it's about flow state and productivity and um it's a seminal book in uh in psychology oh okay yeah flow link in the show notes yeah it's a good book anyways chris ran this group that made um, activist technologies. Both. What's activist technologies? Um, technologies that helped activists out. So this guy, Tad Truscott was there who made um, TextMob, which was a decentralized SMS. It was like the precursor to Twitter before Twitter. And he made it for the Republican National Convention when there were all the protests. So you could text to the server and it would distribute it to all the other people who had texted to that server. Um, and so they got... Um, subpoenaed by the police after all the protests and the FBI. So Chris Chris was this awesome advisor who had a, a bail money set aside every semester for his students to try to get them to kind of push on the edges of um, what you could do with technology. And, Did you and get involved? So you got involved with that. What about the like pushing the boundaries? Yeah, so I worked loosely with him. He was kind of like a friend and um, took a couple classes, and but he was like pretty pretty influential on how I think about why I got into digital stuff at all, which is kind of the power, like before then and after then, actually I spent a lot of time in the physical engineering, like design world, which is like you make a medical injector, you make a whatever, and it's a really slow cycle and it doesn't get to, it 
it's a limited audience. It's a really limited audience, way more limited than digital technologies are. Right. Um, and so uh, I got, he kind of planted that seed, which which was big. But uh, so I worked on a couple of small things. One was this like website called Chopwatch, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and like I actually, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was based on um, Django, Geo Django. Wait, what did it do? What? You know Django? You know Django? Yeah. Like the framework? Yeah, like Wilson Miner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was based on that. Uh, but it was a it was a framework that scraped government um, websites that were like, they put all these shapefiles, which are geospatial files that um, overlay. It's basically like a geofile that has all these crazy coordinates of and data and metadata attached to those coordinates. Um, but all these like, Bureau of Land Management, everyone um, stuffs this stuff away in these weird servers when they have upcoming timber cuts on public lands because, and they hold towns like town hall meetings at weird times of day so that it's harder for people to go and kind of like speak up about it. It's like a known practice. So it's like National Treasure for Activists. Yeah. Wait, maybe. I don't, I don't know what you mean. Are you Nicolas Cage in this? <laughs> no. No, I don't. I've never even seen that movie, <laughs> dude. This is crazy. So this is all through your time at MIT. So this is through MIT, uh, and then from there, I actually got into like so that um, geospatial project of alerting people of timber cuts coming up near them that they could go protest. Turned into me getting into data visualization, which led into working with um, agents with advertising agencies a little, doing. Um, data viz, like no one knew how to produce the data visualizations, right? They were like, let's make uh, pretty graphics, but no one uh, no one was really doing the like math or any of the um, processing behind it. The and programmatic it, side of the data programmatic viz. side, yeah. So uh, I got involved with Open Frameworks, which is like a creative coding framework, C++ framework, and spent a lot of time in there uh, mashing like numbers in C++ and outputting like actually beautiful vector stuff uh, and then working with agencies on that which turned into working exclusively with artists doing um, technical design for uh, like gallery crazy like computer vision mixed with um, hardware like servo control like um, control control design wait you know like, give me an example this one artist I worked with had a had a big gallery show in a 40 40 foot by 60 foot by like 60 foot space so, and uh, he, um, he wanted like 12, 12 like household fans in there, like old little old, like they look like shitty household fans. And he wanted a, a feather that sat in the middle of the space and would just sort of levitate and then could move along a, a defined path, right? Uh, in 3D space. And so um, I worked with him on the, uh, like on the um, control system for that. So the, serve the sort of like servo control to to both track the feather so like the computer vision to identify like back then there wasn't connect so you had to do all this dumb stuff like um illuminate the like you had to make the feather look natural but you could coat it with titanium dioxide which is like a reflectant but it doesn't really read that and you would have cameras set up to register it in 3d space and calibrate that against the space and then you would have fans that would then understand where it is in 3D space relative to themselves and then like pan XY the the tilt of the heads to keep the feather aloft. Um, so like that, that was- Holy shit. That was like a, that was a good one. Um, Those are words. 
Yeah, dude, this is insane. Yeah, I, so I'm it's like, like it's like oh, it's like not. It's like that's kind of how it started into. It was very much based in the engineering side, like physical engineering design and seeing physical products um, and experiences. I was really into. I got super into magic in grad school and learning about like. Um, there's this old uh, golden era magician called Daryl Fitzky, and he has this trilogy. I think it's called the Magician's Trilogy um, or the Magic Trilogy. But one of the books, uh, there's this. There's three books. One is called The Trick Brain, which was written in like the f- 40s, maybe. And so it's all about like uh, how our brain perceives things and how it's fallible and um, how you can exploit that to make these experiences that are uh, kind of surreal and amazing and suspend disbelief, you know, like why why do people think magic works? And so there's a series of books that's all about that. So I got super into that, which turned into the kind of physical engineering of stuff and spaces and experience design and, and kind of physical interaction design of making those experiences. Um, Did you ever work with magicians? Uh, I, no, I haven't. That's like How about wizards? That's, that's my dream. <laughs> Warlocks? <laughs> Sorcerers. Oh, man. Uh, I'm just going through like no. a D&D like character list here. Class, no magicians, no wizards, no sorcerers. Warlocks, though. So, okay, then what happened next? Unspecified. So you- yeah, so I do that. And then I, um, I'd always wanted to learn uh, methodology, like design methodology, um, because I was like fast approaching this weird world of... Um, physical experience and interaction design mixed. And uh, I, I was always like wondering and had read those books and was sort of wondering for a more kind of concrete, a holistic view of how people think about designing these things, both physical as well as digital experiences um, and kind of understanding, better understanding like h- how people interact with those and, and why they interact with them and things like that. So uh, I went to, I went to IDEO to learn design methodology really a very specific brand of methodology called human-centered design. You may have heard of it. Um, nope. No. Yeah. You don't practice it. You should probably it's explain it. <clears throat> um, What's human-centered design? Uh, human-centered design is uh, an old, uh, well, it comes from an old heritage. I guess it was started in the 80s. Uh, IDEA was started in the 70s, um, late 70s, 79, 78. Um and it was really just an industrial design mechanical shop at that point. But um, later on, they, they uh, with Bill Moggridge, who is the pioneer, father of the term interaction design, um, worked there. And uh, they came up with this methodology around um, understanding. So instead of just making something, it was based in latent needs of users or humans and understanding that and then designing using that as a jumping off point um to design around but that's largely hardware right uh it started out hardware but it's you know i mean that's what that, like that evolved yeah. that's what uh why you now have researchers at all of your respective tech companies nope no not yet no too small startup startup well you are your own user researcher mm, yes or hopefully you tr- try to do that. Unless yep. you're of a different ilk, which is that you don't know the needs of the user, you invent them, which is... Bruh. Yeah. That's pretty much how it feels when it's, people it's say that. It's just all intuition, okay? Yeah, it's all intuitive. Bryn's... Um, I'm like... A I'm sort like Johnny, of... I'm Bryn's like Johnny Ive over based here. On yeah. that. He's <laughs> sort of a design savant? Genius? No. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of untouchable and doesn't need that. Yeah, 
I like you guys, but <laughs> you bring me down. Design likes you more. Uh, How long were you at IDEO? I was there for three and a half years. Damn. Yeah. Pretty what long. All, can you talk about what you worked on and yes. how that evolved over over the three and a half years? Yeah, so it's very much started as physical product design. Yeah. So that's doing design engineering. Started with medical devices, like you know, how do multiple sclerosis patients who have limited mobility interact with a injectable device that they have to get out of the fridge and unlock and then put on a on a good injection site and make sure that they feel comfortable with that where they're about to inject and then actually inject and make the whole device inject and then retract and deliver all the fluid which is super expensive without wasting a drop and then lock out so that the needle doesn't actually ever come out again um all mechanical so no electronics right so it's this crazy rube goldberg machine so it started out a lot as that just medical device design um and um mechanism design uh like mechanical mechanism design. yeah so like ran isn't anything mechanical a mechanism isn't that the whole point well, you can abstract it, right, to uh, uh, like ideological mechanism, a um, mm. political mechanism, a whatever mechanism, right? But it's rooted definitely. If there are mechanics, it's a mechanism. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be physical. Whatever. Right, right. But that's uh, the root word, I believe they say. Mech. Uh, large fighting robots. Yep. Yeah. Me- of mech- or as a large fighting robot. <laughs> Stemming from Mech Warrior, the video game. <laughs> That's where that word comes from, everyone. Uh, yeah, so I did that, and uh, a couple of years in, they realized I could program. And they realized. They realized. They didn't know. I did they didn't, like. They didn't scream. They for were that? like. They were like, "We're short on interaction designer on this project, uh, and we need to prototype this interface." And I was like, "I can do it." Uh, so I prototyped this um, physical product in in a digital like equivalent. So it was like. It was it was really um, like cat. It was like a really ridiculous. In hindsight, I mean, it's not ridiculous. Whatever. Uh, it's a. It was a project for like a label maker, right? A, a label maker was trying. Like there was all these new methods of input, right? So there was um, like capacitive touch. Whoa, uh, crazy. Versus resistive. Versus resistive, um, as well as like. You know, all label makers have tactile keyboards, so you like press the button and it depresses, and it's and it feels like you're in 1970. Um, and uh, there's probably better ways of inputting that are faster, like an iPhone or whatever. Uh, so there's a there's a project around like let's prototype um, different ways of inputting basically into a physical device, uh, but not but do it cheaply. How, like it was like a two week sprint or something. And I ended up using uh, Open Frameworks to program a prototype on an iPad that was like four different, you know, worked with the industrial designer to create a 3D rendering that fit on the iPad screen that was kind of one-to-one size and then use the sort of 3D rendering on the screen and then with Open Frameworks could program whatever we wanted. So we programmed um, capacitive, you know, like a capacitive interface one where it actually you could draw, you could draw the characters and it and it actually sent the paths to uh, my computer, which would then do the character recognition and send it, because we couldn't do it on the iPad, it was like too intensive and you couldn't get the libraries on there. You can do that shit with Quartz Composer, it's no big deal. Can you? <laughs> uh, did you see Mike Mattis's new- He made a neural network. Oh, I new saw brain, that. New brainchild. That was crazy. That was insane. Brain that was child? like well, a so crazy exercise in Quartz Composer. That's a Mike Composer. Mattis thing. Yeah, it is. I love how it was so casual too. Hey, I've just been working on this thing super casual on the weekends. What's up? It's a neural networking <laughs> quartz. And everyone's like, what? 
I don't even know what a neural network is. I don't even know how to fucking move shapes and quartz. I can't even use quartz. Yeah, quartz is intense. Oh my god! Have you used origami on top of it? For no, never. Different. different, I mean, no, no, not never. I've tried. I've used it, but I've never found a great app. Like I don't ever find a good application for it. Well, let's get into that later. Sure. Uh, Yeah, I should speed this. This. No, no, you're good. This is. It's fascinating because, like, up until now. I am actually having a hard time connecting the dots to what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, so I have a next year. I think that like every night to myself. How the hell did I yeah. get here? Yeah. So I started prototyping that kind of stuff, like interaction design, prototype interaction design. And then um, we formed, we actually formed a little group internally in IDEO, called, which we spun up. Like there were kind of interaction designers were um, their own discipline, uh, rightfully so. And... But there wasn't interaction design as a discipline didn't necessarily mean that you could code or prototype interfaces um, or prototype digital experiences uh, at that point. And so we formed a group called the um, Digital Shop around digital prototyping that lasted for a while. And then I left on sabbatical um, because um, in an agency, you don't get to make your own thing and then watch it watch and learn from it and watch it grow and uh, that's really what I wanted um, was to make something and then iterate on it and see how it either um, flourishes or dies in the world and then learn from that and move on so uh, I left on sabbatical reading a bunch of white papers about computer mediated communication and the early days of how people thought whoa whoa whoa, whoa. sounds really unpack like this dude exciting unpack super super it actually is pretty damn exciting if you read the papers if you can read can, it's exciting can, well first of all well said that's a very strict requirement second what were the white papers if you remember that we could link to uh i can send you i've got a big folder of them that are amazing all right do you want me to pick out one you want me to pick <laughs> yeah, out one yeah, yeah i can't think of one off the top of my head okay well then why did <laughs> you, all, why did you all, offer they're all named like a study of chat and people with layered messaging services it's like it's like ridiculous research what drew you into this kind of stuff like you've come from you heard that title and weren't to me like i gotta read that shit right yeah you want to read that that's what you work on dude you should read those papers they're important i guess i should yeah Yeah, they're from like 1980 when people were like what it was back when computers were lookup based interfaces you know and you Mm -hmm. were like went on a message board i guess uh and forums were a thing you know and people were like net yeah people like actively had to search out this information versus uh, like push based and so there were all these theories about how people like people used to think that chat rooms couldn't exist because there would be too many um people talking at the same time and that no one could parse that conversation have no you been one- on twitch <laughs> plug um <laughs> I've been on Twitch. Claim to fame right there. I've been yeah. on Twitch. I have been on Twitch. Wait. As wait, a wait. guest. <laughs> wait, actually? Yeah. I, I feel like there's a story here that I actually No, don't there's know. no story there. I've been on Twitch like once to watch Twitch plays Pokemon. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I was like, what the fuck is this? I'm out. Peace. So, okay, people are writing these papers. In oh, yeah. So people are 80s. writing all these papers and they're like, there is no possible way that humans can understand a chat room. Have you been on Twitch? <laughs> I'm glad we took a break to talk about Twitch. For fuck's sake. This is the Twitch Plays Pokemon version of a podcast. Oh, God. That's so good. Yeah. So I was reading a lot about have you been on Twitch recently? And uh, people just didn't, they, they used to have this crazy view of 
how humans think about conversations and what they can and can't parse and what they can and can't follow uh, in like distributed rooms. Um, and so I was reading a lot about that because I was really curious about uh, why comments suck basically or, or like there used to be a lot of forums that were good and, and that were really productive conversations or some of them were uh, and they kind of just like they waned they don't really exist anymore and so I was reading a lot about like what are the what are the fundamental building blocks of a conversation and what do you have to have in place in a digital like in a physical environment for a conversation to flourish and and then I was thinking about how might that translate to a digital environment and can you or can you not replicate that in a digital world things like trust and things like shared sense of network and um, shared sense of knowledge there's all these crazy studies on like if you are trying to convince someone of a, a opposing viewpoint that you have to at least share some numerical value like 80% of views in common and so I've been thinking about that a lot lately that's have something you? yeah I, I come across that a lot when we were when we we're trying to have like product conversations and someone is coming from the perspective of I feel strongly about this versus I have data you can't really argue against each other if you don't come from the same perspective that either intuition is better or data is better yeah it's it's like the the example i always use is like creationists versus evolutionists because <laughs> they just don't have the same basis at all yeah yeah absolutely and so uh, the i think the question is like uh given an information set can you understand what those people do share in common and bring that to the surface and use that as a jumping off like you think about dinner table conversations and it and it's like okay we're both in this room so we have a minimum amount of stuff in common that puts us in the same room together mm -hmm. and based on that we can have productive conversations right dude holy shit this is crazy this is like twitter people who also follow this person right yeah like every profile it's but other people that follow irl yeah right like move that to chat and other like, people who dine with this human being facebook mutual <laughs> friends Absolutely. right like all this kind of stuff ah yeah. this is crazy okay. and so that's that's cool. There's there's the um, shared connections and there's a shared like knowledge or beliefs or, or whatever of of some minimum amount in common to have an intelligent conversation like um, to help convince somebody of something or, or uh, change their opinion. So I was really interested in that. Um, and if you could or couldn't create a space in the digital realm that reflected uh, a lot of the human conditions and affordances that we have in real life, uh, because that should exist, maybe. And if it works at, at large scales, that's really cool for intelligent debates and kind of round tables and things like that that actually help shift thinking in in new directions instead of just kind of like the comments as we know them today. Uh, so I read a ton about that, started designing a lot of... Uh, a lot around that wrote a couple kind of prototype apps that were pretty funny and interesting. A lot of them were kind of like uh, hypotheses that I would build and send to friends to kind of understand if I was onto something or not. And then a friend introduced me to Ev and I started talking with him about uh, what he was doing at Medium. What I, what I, Ev Williams. Ev Williams. Um, and I increasingly, what I was running up against was that a lot of the conversations need a kernel to you can't just kind of like you obviously can't create conversation in a void you you can but it's maybe not that productive so you need a kind of kernel to kind of build around and so that's either a community or a topic and um communities are basically forums uh there's a 
point to be made for why those should or shouldn't exist still. I I still think they should. Josh, I was really psyched on Josh Miller and Rooms. Um, shout out to Josh. Uh, for exactly for that reason, I think that there's something really cool there that still doesn't exist. Um, what about Slack? Yeah, Slack is cool. Uh, I, I don't totally, I guess I haven't really thought about how that fits into that model. I think Just, the bigger problem is that it's not centralized. Like you can't browse to like a lot of people treat it like it's a platform but it's not yeah in the same way yeah there's no real organizing mechanic you have to go seek one out separately yeah yeah it actually is pretty hard like if you go you can look up like slack for designers and there's like six thousand you'll get the craziest array of results that is is pretty you can't really act on. And the number one is spec.fm slash slack. The spec slack team. <laughs> it's pretty rad. Because it is the best 3,500 designers and developers. <laughs> wow. Boom. Self, self wow. plug. Self plug. That's good. Um, so uh, anyways. Ev, did Ev sell you on Medium? Well, yeah. So Did he evangelize it? <laughs> um, yeah, I increasingly became convinced that you need a kernel of something to jump off from for a conversation and medium is kind of the com is kind of is a good medium it's a great is a perfect medium for that you've got the network of people and you've got the content and that's that's all you can really ask for when trying to kick off a conversation so uh he, yeah so i i brought a lot of what i was thinking about in there and and since then i've been working largely on um interactions on the platform and conversations so how people interact with each other how people interact with text um, from the reading and consumption experience and how people converse on the platform as much as you can could you give an example like you're you read all these white papers you're thinking about all these uh, commonalities that people need to have and stuff like that what have you implemented at medium since then that would be an example of of what you learned new logo mm, probably yeah the new uh, logo uh <laughs> No, um, <laughs> one of the, so we actually have, um, from a product standpoint, we have what we call responses. So at the bottom of the, at the, at the bottom as well as throughout the post, um, if there's quote responses, so responses to specific passages of the text. Um, yeah, we have what are called responses, which is, uh, so one, so there's a couple sort of system design things in there, which is uh, this idea that, Everything that you write is a is a post. So if you have an idea that builds on the um, original post, that in and of itself can flourish and sort of have the same qualities that a normal post can. So it's this um, notion that your that the that your idea is as valuable as the one before, and and creating this sense that ideas build on each other and that they can grow and be kind of a hub, a nexus for the next set of ideas. It feels um, like dribble rebounds. That's how it was explained to me the first time. Really? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I guess it is. I mean, it's the same structural thing, right? So just in, it's just posts all the way down. Yeah, posts all the way down. Um, that they can that they inherit the same uh, properties as their parents, the same object, um, and that uh, those are attributed to the author or to whoever writes it. So instead of being anonymized, they're attributed to someone, which is huge for uh, preventing or like. Uh, mitigating trolls um the other thing is that conversation so instead and so showing these groups of conversation versus uh uh, one level deep and then you have to click that to go to the next level deep so actually showing the development of conversation as well as 
probably the one of the bigger things, which is that uh, the responses that you see are limited to your network. So the the people who you follow, as well as responses that people you follow have recommended, in addition to responses that the author has recommended or author. So this idea <laughs> Holy that shit. yeah, so it sounds complex in practice when you get to the to the bottom or when you're reading in line. We sort of show you the stuff that matters most to you first from your network. If you want to, you can always um, go outside of your network and show all the responses. But this idea that we sort of try to create a space of, um, you know, your network and and a hop away or something like that to try to help. Um, it has that commonality. Yeah. Yeah. It has a, has a sense of trust. Uh, you don't get all the like, maybe immediately you don't get the stuff that you don't need to see first and so creating just trying to create a sense of community and space and and trust and um mechanisms like that that exist in the real world in the digital space can you talk a little bit about your transition i'm just thinking your background from from mit and like this fluid dynamics mechanical engineering all this crazy stuff through ido where you're designing uh like medical hardware what's the transition what was it like moving from that sort of world to thinking about a digital surface and like a purely digital product. Yeah, uh, I think it was. Um, so I was really excited about it. Uh, I feel like um, there's this sense of uh, optimism because you can push like the cycle time is so short. It's so crazy short when you come from a mechanical or physical product world that has a cycle time of years. Um, shipping daily is like the most incredible thing you could ever ask for. Like, I still trip out about it every day that um, we'll just like hit the button and everyone sees it. Seems like the most banal thing at this point in the world, but it's really not. Uh, uh, so there's definitely that, the sense of uh, like quick and dirty, you know, like make, make, uh, make quick changes. Small reversible decisions, as, as we like to say mm, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, doing that and then uh also i think um yeah physical physical product design is not that different from interaction design you know in terms of like thinking about structures like affordances and and feedback and all that yeah, kind of stuff yeah mm-hmm. um thing like people how people identify objects and how they can use them and it just applies to a physical uh, digital surface instead of a physical one yeah so i'm i'm not poking fun in any direction but medium is really well known for its just intense focus on perfection when it comes to type. Like there's just been posts on posts on posts about how, here's how we handle underlines and here's how that we handle character list thing that, that, that post that Dustin made, we actually duplicated that for other, like our platform. Right. It's insane. Like the, the lengths yeah. you guys go to for, for type, which makes a lot of sense on a platform where the, the, yeah. Like, well, the, the user interaction is reading. Sure. Uh, so how do you, how you personally, how do you balance stuff like that versus actually kind of like higher level product thinking? Where are you focused and what do you like? Yeah. How does that work at Medium kind of dividing those kind of things? Uh, our team is diverse in the sense that we all care about different parts. So I think literally every post about the pilcros and underlines and type and everything was written by Marchin. Um, who's there, who cares so much about type. Uh, Marchin Wickery? Yeah, it almost hurts. Not Marchin, it almost hurts Wickery. Marchin, he cares about type so much, it almost hurts Wickery. 
Um, so there's folks like that who care about type or things like that. And then uh, other people care. Pablo cares a lot about visual, Pablo Caro. And then uh, there's folks like myself who care a lot about the kind of system design and loops and flows through the, through the product, uh, as well as more I, I, like Medium in, in the early days was uh, largely focused. I mean, not largely, but um, originally there's a lot of effort put into the editor. So making one of the best editor experience possible, um, simple delight uh, in, in editing and, and kind of making it smart and um, everything's kind of handled in the background. You don't really have to think about it. It just happens that quotes, the, the uh, quotes are that go the right way and M dashes and N dashes and everything just kind of magically happens behind the scenes and it's pretty amazing. Uh, and and we, we nailed a lot of that. And um, whereas I'm more, I, I care more about kind of the uh, reading and interacting, like the consumption experience and what it means to, you know, sort of how we did it for the editor, for the text creation experience. How do we think about the text consumption experience and the text interaction experience? There's all these cool old school elements of type that we've kind of modernized into, into an editor how do we think about kind of modernizing the text interaction experience since it's not printed on a page anymore and it's movable and and there's a network around it and things like that. So I think that within the within the team, we uh, each of us kind of goes in different directions in terms of what we care about most. And from a product standpoint, we usually we, we split up accordingly, right? A lot of times so that we're working on the stuff that we have a lot of passion around. So from a consumer's perspective, Medium is incredibly simple, right? It's yeah. Just a wall of text, some images, some embeds. That's called success. But as we all, yeah, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. So what's going on? Like, what are some of the big challenges you're facing now? You have this platform laid out, the infrastructure is there, you've got the network responses, things like that. You have six designers. What are some of the big challenges you guys are trying to think about right now? Yeah, I think... Um, what are all your product decisions for the next year? Thanks. <laughs> yeah, what, be, are we going, can, what are we going up against in the next no, year? No, it can be abstracted out from that. So, for example, growing a team, right? Is that actually a hard thing for for you guys right now? Um, is it... It's about medium. Is it monetization? I guess I don't know if you could talk about that. Like, there's all these kinds of things that, that from a consumer's perspective, you wouldn't think about. The most challenging thing, yeah. Uh, we've done a couple things really well, I think. Um People are writing on the platform. Their stuff's getting distributed, reaching new audiences, reaching larger audiences. Nobody says I'm going to write a blog post anymore. Right. Uh, people, it's becoming the go-to spot to write, uh, which is amazing. That's that's happening, um, and we're we're doing a lot of stuff around how you interact with text with highlights. That was uh, something I worked on that I was that I'm really psyched on still as sort of like when it exists across a network with a breadth of content. It's pretty. It's pretty powerful. And so I think a lot of what we're going to be working on is uh, maybe not necessarily, is, is in, in addition to sort of that, that core experience is uh, how do we think about content on the platform? How do we think about consumption of content? How do we think about contextualizing when and why and where people consume content? Um, and, you know, stuff like do people read long stuff on phones? Uh, when do they read long stuff on phones? Do they break it up? into discrete times that they were, you know, like just actually thinking a lot more about how people consume content, how people write content, the breadth of content on Medium um, and how people find that content is, a, is another big thing. Like we've got a stream. 
I, I often trip out a lot about this. I don't know. It's not like a priority by any means, but on my own time, it's like we think about the stream and as a construct and we kind of, that like construct kind of came from uh, like photos and like status updates, but that construct didn't develop around content around like meaningful content, you know, around longer stuff. Uh, is the stream is a stream a right construct for meaningful content? I don't know. Like maybe not, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what what it, what's in place of that, right? So f- at least for myself, uh, that's that's like not a team priority. But for myself, it's a lot of challenging um, assumptions, right, around models of consumption, models of distribution, and models of discovery, especially when it's kind of fundamentally something different than we're than we're used to seeing on networks right on most networks it's an image or some text or uh, a collage um, or or whatever whatever it is like series of photos uh, but how do we th- how do we think about ingesting longer more meaningful stuff in a network um, so one of the things that's interesting to me about medium is there's this huge social component to it but Instead of, you know, a traditional social network is about the people and, and interactions and shared things, which Medium has some of that. There's like some social context. It's largely a platform about ideas and it's not necessarily attributed to the person as heavily. And the networking is different, right? It's around ideas and, and long form content or longer form content than say a status update. So how does that change the way you design and your team designs uh, at Medium? Um, yeah, that's a that's a great question, Brian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought of it on the spot. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, it's it's pretty cool. It's uh, it's a really amazing opportunity and also hard at the same time, right? Uh, so I, I mean, it's it's a t- it, it's kind of tough. It's like you deal with this on the daily, probably since um, you deal with user generated content, but. Um, you look at things like California Sunday Mag, shout out Wilson, um, that are beautiful. They're just straight up gorgeous. Uh, and um, it's incredible. Uh, they don't they don't necessarily have to deal with any kind of social context on that platform, right? Or on, on their site. Um, they don't they don't have to show you uh, if people you know have read this or if they've recommended it or if they've highlighted it or uh, responded or, or anything like that, or, uh, if even anyone, you know, um, how do you get that even, you know? And so there's some freedom in that because they can make beautiful editorial decisions, but there's also a layer I think that, um, is, is missing. I guess in my, in my opinion, uh, we have the ability to do a lot of really amazing things like layering on this kind of social context, which is pretty powerful in a lot of situations to help you know, point out salient points of a post, help authors get feedback. Uh, it's kind of a fundamentally different way of interacting with, with text and, and these like little breadcrumbs of your friends or people you trust or, or who you um, think know something about whatever you're reading have left you, which is kind of remarkable. Um, and uh, Do you yeah. see it as more liberating or constraining? Because I'm thinking like the California Sunday Mag example is like, I imagine designing there and you have this canvas, right? Beautiful canvas. Beautiful canvas. Beautiful gradients. Um, Beautiful gradients. And when you start dealing with users, there are just certain constraints you have you have to follow. Yeah. Is it, that is that a good thing for you? Do you enjoy that? Or do you sometimes wish that there was a, a canvas for something a little more editorialized and, and art directed? Um, 
I'm, I guess it depends on the day. <laughs> um, I think there's days where that social context is amazing and it actually makes these things come to life, you know, uh, as opposed to if you stripped all of that away, um, it tells a different story. So I think there's these moments where medium is, is pretty, it, it's remarkable what it does uh, and what it can power as opposed to not enabling those levels of interaction and just being that static feels like a static HTML document, you know, versus something that you can actually interact with and is living and breathing. Um, I think a lot about Brett Victor and his living documents and and thinking about... Uh, what's the living documents? I'm not sure how to summarize it, um, but this... In the show notes. In the show notes, but give a stab. Yeah, the basic principle is that uh, because we have a digital document um, that and sort of like hyperlinks and intertwingularity and those concepts. Intertwingularity. Yeah. You know intertwingularity? No. Oh. Holy moly. Intertwingularity was this concept that uh, Ted Nelson, I believe, I hope I don't get that wrong, um, pioneered, which was basically the idea of hyperlinking documents. Um, so he was kind of the, the birther that's a no, different no, thing. No, that's a different, <laughs> different word. Thing. The birther. He, 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 <laughs> like was, the he was a birther. Uh, that he pioneered a lot of the thought around that documents could link to one another and that you could have text inside one. He recently finally shipped his original vision, which he had in like 1974, called Project Xanadu. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's like a website that takes basically 10 minutes to load and is like 100 megabytes, but oh, it's no. like a static uh, Wikipedia article that links to other article. It's crazy. Anyways... He, there, was a, there was a lot of concepts around hyperlink documents and things like that. So, um, yeah, Brett Victor um, is a great guy who's been thinking a lot about how to make documents interactable, uh, both from links, like links is the basics, but if you had a, a number that described um, that a two-degree level in C-Rise would impact uh, X billion number of people, right? Or wait, two-degree C-Rise in temperature, would affect X billion people that in that document. How many Republicans will deny it? Yeah, how many, <laughs> that that there's a, uh, yeah, below that is the sum of how many Republicans would deny it. And you could basically um, manipulate the two degree C and it would uh, propagate throughout the document so that the document was um, governed by equations or models and that it's a, that it's a thing that you can learn from. And so, uh, th- there's that similar feeling sometimes immediate, like there's balancing that craziness, that level of depth with the simplicity that we try to strike with medium so that it, uh, obviously you're not going to put in a mathematical model into, me- into your medium post. Maybe, maybe I'd someday. like to, maybe. that sounds great. Never um, say never. Maybe that's like write a design post. Sounds like I actually a, had that. Whoa. It sounds like Figma. Figma's pretty rad. Figma's pretty dope. Since we are running out of time, I do have one final question. Yes. You talked about your original vision kind of getting into all of this craziness was to design the perfect surfboard. Have you done it? What's the perfect surfboard? Uh, it depends on the person. Um, on the day, on the water, on the... Different Different people have different needs, man. Depends on whether their muscles are designed like rubber bands. <laughs> are rubber, you still designing surfboards? Rubber bands, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, it's still shape. Oh, um, that's the, the industry term? <laughs> I mean, you just shape a surfboard. It's made out of foam and then you put fiberglass on it and then you surf it. So you make your own surfboards? Yeah. You make the ones that you ride? Uh-huh. Yeah. Up until about three years ago, I'd never bought a surfboard. What happened? 
Um, I wanted to see how the professionals surfboard, <laughs> how, how the real people do it. There and, might be uh, something to it. <laughs> yeah. Turns out they know what they're doing. So, really? Yeah. So you stopped making them? No, still make them. But I'm learning from the people who know how to do better than me right now. That is awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Great place to end. Yeah, we're out of time. Wonderful. Anything you want to plug before you go? You get one thing, Brad. So keep it. Maybe two if you play your cards. Keep it right. together. Um, we're looking for designers at Medium. Uh, come have lunch with me whenever you want at the Medium offices. Um, if you're out of town, can they hit you up on Twitter? Absolutely. Anyone out there can hit can can reach out to me on Twitter uh, at Lightning Bolts with a Z. Um, like Art Diego with a Z. Light mm-hmm. Z N I N G. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> lightning bolt Z at lightning bolt Z, and uh, yeah, come over, say hi. Dope. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for doing it, man. This Thanks is for fun. having me. Yeah. That was episode 108. Brad is rad. Brad's rad. We and hope they you, rhyme. We hope you enjoyed listening. Brian, do you know they rhyme? Brad and rad. You're welcome. Rad's part of Brad. Brad is rad. Before we go, two things. First, let us know what you think on Twitter. If you have feedback about the episode, the show. Uh, hit us up at Design Details FM or in our Slack team at spec.fm slash Slack. And of course, huge thanks to our sponsor for making this episode possible. Dropbox. Dropbox lets you work the way you want. And it's super simply on any file, with any device, from wherever you are, with anyone you choose. So you can start doing cooler things faster. Get shit done. It syncs your stuff, makes it easy to collaborate. Brent and I use it. We love it. It's We use it to collaborate together. Yeah. It's a necessity. Uh, Go check them out. They're at dropbox.com. Huge thanks once again to Dropbox for making this episode possible. See you on Wednesday with Daniel Eden. Yeah, firework, cause you hot and technical. Nope, nope. Where's the shot anyway? Thanks for leaving that in there, Sarah.